Each and every day, we put on our hard hats and our steel-toed boots, we kiss our families goodbye, and we begin the tough work to energize the great United States of America. For over 20 years, Scott Angel has led the fight to balance the three E's, environment, energy, and economy. Now, he's sitting down for a cup of coffee with the most influential energy leaders in the country to celebrate and elevate the American energy worker. This is Balancing the Three E's podcast with your host, Scott Angel, the voice of the USA energy worker. Good morning from the USA energy worker studio in the heart of Cajun country, where today we are focused on celebrating and elevating the contributions of our USA energy workers across America as they help America balance the three E's of energy, environment, and economy. We certainly believe in the old cliche that if you can read, thank a teacher. It's so true. You know, our teachers deserve our appreciation and respect. We like to add to that cliche, if you can read at night in your cool or warm home, thank a teacher and a USA energy worker. And speaking of balancing the three E's, somehow along the way, the red states became concerned about one E called energy. The blue state states about another E called environment. And at USA Energy Workers, we believe there is a third E that has to be a part of the national conversation. It's not red or blue, it's bright purple, and this third E is called the economy. You see, we've had six recessions from 1973 to 2019, and all have been preceded by a spike in energy prices. We build and sell more cars, and we build and sell more homes when we have access to affordable energy. We have a more robust retail, entertainment, travel, and leisure economy with affordable energy. Inflation is lower with affordable energy. Food costs costs are lower. Monthly utility bills are lower. Clearly, unaffordable energy affects us all, but especially the single mom carrying kids across town to daycare and senior citizens on fixed incomes often making choices between paying for prescription drugs and utility bills. In today's Energy U podcast, we will focus on American energy, access to American energy being the solution to balancing the three E's of energy, environment, and economy. It's clear that nobody does it better than the USA energy worker, and we believe it's time to quit vilifying the American energy production while begging OPEC to increase their production. Rather, we need to unleash the inspiration, the dedication, the innovation, and absolutely, indeed, the perspiration of our USA energy workers. But don't take just my word for it. In February of 2023, the Institute of Energy Research issued a report that concluded that domestic production of oil and gas is better for the environment than importing production from foreign sources. Relying on congressionally mandated offshore lease sales rather than the historical practice of adopting comprehensive five-year offshore lease schedules is poor public policy and puts the American economy at unnecessary risk due to high energy prices. Again, don't take my word for it. On October 11, 2021, the Wall Street Journal editorial board agreed, quoting, the way to reduce gas prices is by increasing oil supply. So clearly, in the name of the environment, 
it absolutely makes no sense to pause and cancel offshore lease sales in the United States while asking OPEC to do more. OPEC responded by simply throwing the middle bird to America and saying, don't ask us to do what you won't do for yourselves. Today, I want to focus on the climate advantages of the Gulf of Mexico. A little background for our audience. The Gulf of Mexico produces about one in every seven barrels of U.S. oil production. But clearly, this is not your grandfather's Gulf of Mexico. According to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, offshore exploration and production is the second safest high-hazard industry in America when measuring incidents per 200,000 man-hours. This performance is second only to the nuclear power generation industry. From recent data, the volume of oil spilled to oil produced was 13 tablespoons in a 660,000-gallon Olympic-sized swimming pool in 2018, 17 tablespoons in 2019, and a half a gallon in 2020. Incredible improvements in that space. But that's not all. One of the things I think that gets misunderstood about offshore energy is the respect for marine life that the marine workers in the industry has. There have been zero marine mammal or sea turtle fatalities from oil and gas operations on the outer continental shelf from 2017 to at least 2021. Certainly, I think, indicating to America that not only do we respect life, but we also respect marine life. And I would say to our listeners across, not too long ago, perhaps, when there was a marine mammal strike, you could hear Cajuns working offshore, perhaps responding to, maybe we need to start cutting the onions and the bell peppers because there's going to be fish on tonight. That whole uh, mindset has changed drastically, and there is a huge, huge respect for marine life in the Gulf of Mexico. I think you'd also be interested in knowing that a federal document issued by the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management in November of 2016 by the Obama-Biden administration concluded that the United States, I'm quoting here, concluded that United States greenhouse gas emissions would be higher if BOEM were to have no lease sales. It goes on to say that emissions would be higher due to exploration, development, production, and transportation of oil from international sources being more carbon intensive. Again, this is a report, it was a federal report that concluded that if we did not have lease sales in the Gulf of Mexico, we would have more carbon emissions because we would have to backfill our supply needs with with foreign energy, often from international sources being more carbon intensive. Yet, despite that conclusion reached by the Obama-Biden administration in a federal document in November 2016, that's exactly the energy policy our nation has adopted. We have paused and canceled lease sales, and we are now asking foreign countries to backfill our needs with higher carbon intensity production. It's hard to understand, and at USAenergyworkers.com, we believe we should be favoring LaRose, Lafayette, Lake Arthur, Lake Charles, and Lubbock over Libya, Midland over Moscow, Abbeville over Algeria, Kaplan over Kuwait, and Dulac over Dubai. It's clear that offshore has been a part of the American energy portfolio for now over five decades. This is not radical policy to embrace energy production from publicly owned offshore properties.
We've had it for over five decades between 13 different presidents of different parties. In fact, earlier this year, the distinguished CEO of British Petroleum stated that more investment in oil and gas was good for the climate fight. He correctly explains that reducing supply without reducing demand inevitably leads to price spikes, which leads to economic volatility, which undermines the support for our energy transition. Said another way, that statement screams out what we've been saying at USA Energy Workers. It's about balancing the three E's. So we want to bring in a very, very special guest, a gentleman that has had a distinguished career in both the private and public sector. Uh, I'm happy to introduce to uh, Cajun Country and to our inaugural energy podcast, former Secretary David Bernhardt. Good morning, Secretary Bernhardt. It's so good to have you joining us. I hope you are well today, sir. Scott, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, let, let me give our audience a little bit of background. The first thing I would say about him, you could wrap it up in a couple statements. While most people in Washington, D.C. are playing checkers, David Bernhardt plays chess. The other thing I would tell our audience, if he tells you there's a cheese on the moon, you ought to start packing your crackers. Having said that, in a serious way, while serving as 53rd Secretary of the Department of Interior, Secretary Bernhardt led a U.S. Cabinet Department with an asset portfolio of over $300 billion, a $16 billion annual budget, and nearly 70,000 employees through a period of transformational improvement and change. He's a creative problem solver. He's focused on efforts to conservation stewardship, expand opportunities for access to hunting and fishing on public lands. He drove regulatory change and worked to enhance our nation's energy independence. And I can say working for him, while we drove change and we drove energy independence, the one thing he made it very clear to me, never sacrifice safety and never sacrifice environmental stewardship. So I'm very, very proud to have been a part of your team, sir. I appreciate so many things that, that you did for us. And, uh, you know, it, it, when, you, when you take a look at, at the fact that he's the only person to have served Senate confirmation as the Secretary of the Department of Interior, the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Interior, and the solicitor. So he's a chief officer, the chief operational officer, and the chief legal officer. Again, tremendous service, sir. And we are very, very proud to have you with us. A little note for our folks. He's a country boy. He grew up in Rifle, Colorado. He's more comfortable in his boots than he is in his sneakers or his uh, hush puppies, I would say. And what I love, or one more thing, sir, your father was a was a county agent, and, right. and my dad was an assistant. My dad was assistant county agent, and so I know you close to the land, and you close to the people, and you close to Mother Earth. So thank you so much for joining us. And with that background, I thought we would just kind of also mention to folks about your new book, and we'll give you a chance to talk about your new book. I've had an opportunity to read your new book, incredible new book that I think is a must read for folks who are going into government, a book that is called You Report to Me. And you can get that book by going online at www.encounterbooks.com backslash books slash you report to me. It's an incredible book. Thank you for taking the time to write that book and share it with us. As we kind of get into to, to sharing with America some of the, the challenges that we have in, in this whole energy space, uh, tell us a little bit, Secretary Bernhardt, at the Department of Interior, 
What was your main goal during your time there? Well, you know, the beauty of, the beauty of our system, Scott, is, um, you know, and you know this better than anyone, when you're running uh, an agency like Bessie or, um, or the Department of, of the Interior, your goals are set by the, the person at the top, you know, the President of the United States. And in our case, we had the good fortune to work for our president who had a, um, a big vision when it came to energy and energy policy. You know, he had a vision of uh, what he termed energy dominance, and he had laid out that vision um, in his presidential campaign in uh, 2016, and then he had, uh, you know, refined that vision a little bit through his transition and some of his first days actions and early executive orders. And the great thing about being in a department where the president gives you some clarity is uh, you don't really have to think about the what too much. You just need to think about the how, you know, how to get it done, how to, how to move it forward. And so I, I think that one of the, the great luxuries we had is we had a clarity at the top about what, what needed to be accomplished. Um, you know, we, we both worked for Secretary Zinke, who laid out a, you know, took the president's policy and laid out a clear vision, and we got to implement it, and then we got to carry it out later as well. And um, having a vision that basically says, look, we have incredible uh, natural resources in this country. Uh, we can develop them in an environmentally responsible way, probably cleaner than anywhere in the world, and we can do it in a way that fundamentally improves uh, the lives of the American people and enhances our national security prospects was something that was very exciting. So, you know, our job at the end of the day was relatively easy. It was like, okay, uh, get with it. And um, what was remarkable in our tenure from my perspective is that we would uh, head down a pathway and, and the president wasn't uh, – wasn't going to pull us back. And as a result of that, if you look at your productivity or other bureaus' productivity during our tenure of interior, what you see is that it really, really outpaced its uh, predecessors in terms of activity and timing. And, and that's something that I'm proud of. I think we did a decent job of saying, you know, we're going to move forward with dispatch. We're going to make decisions thoughtfully after looking at the law and the facts and understanding the president's policies. But our job, you know, our job was pretty simple. Get her done, get her done quickly, get her done in a way that's responsible and good for America. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're here to find a way to meet that policy goal of, you know, energy dominance and energy prosperity, frankly. I mean, if you look at where we are today in the economy and, you know, <laughs> most of our challenges go right back uh, to the current cost of energy. Set. No doubt. No doubt. And, and as you said that you reflected Prouds, you should be proud, sir, because the results are amazing when we take a look at that energy dominance. And, and I was so impressed as you had your hands on the steering wheel there that the management of the resources that we've been blessed with 
had this kind of theme that I started actually here when I had the responsibility of running a very small department here in Louisiana called the Department of Natural Resources, that it's not an either-or equation, right, that we can actually do more than one thing at one time in America and that we can have a sustainable environment. At the same time, we have high domestic energy production. And I was, you know, I was so pleased to, to work in, in a space where that was the overall theme. And I think we, you know, we're able to prove, right, that certainly in the offshore sector, more familiar with that. In 2019, the voters and the listeners need to hear that in 2019, we had the highest offshore oil production in the history of the country. At the same time, uh, we had the fewest volume of environmental spills and a incredible safety performance record there. Just really, really hitting all of the marks. At the same time, no, no marine mammal or sea turtle fatalities. Uh, so I think proven right that we can do it all. We can do more than one thing at one time. And and that kind of lack of management today for we can do it all is causing uh, some incredible pain at the pump. And you know when you listen to the conversation, it seems like folks uh, want to maybe try to blame most of the higher prices that we've had on Russia's war in Ukraine. But I think the truth is very clear. Prices were increasing well before that. Tell us uh, what you think about, you know, energy prices, how you see energy prices through the prism of the war in Ukraine. Well, I mean, uh, I'm going to jump right back in that, but I want to highlight something you just said about the safety record that was under your leadership in 2019 and the production record. And you know what's amazing about that? Like that was absolutely incredible. And uh, what's even more amazing is I'll guarantee you that that never showed up on the front page of the Washington Post, the New York Times, or anywhere else. And um, while you had that incredible record of safety demonstrating that we can do both responsibly, uh, produce and, and, and maintain high environmental standards while you had that, I can guarantee you every journalist in America was just sitting there waiting, waiting for an incident, you know, and, um, and what we had was an incredible track record. So now, look, when you talk about, you talk about the price of energy, you know, a big part of it at the end of the day is, uh, you know, the laws and supply and demand are very important, but incentivizing entities to get out and do this work To be fair, elections have consequences. And really, from the day this president, uh, President Biden, was sworn into office, you know, he sat down and he he declared uh, quite clearly and very aggressively what his vision for energy was. And his vision for energy is basically, at the end of the day, any energy from anywhere but America. Yeah. And um, and, you know, we're going to we're happy to take energy from anywhere. And. And what's amazing to me is if he had used that theme in the uh, campaign, I, I think it would have gone something like this. Look, my energy policy is to make everything more expensive and ensure that American workers don't benefit uh, energy workers. American energy workers are harmed by not having the benefit of developing because we're going to stop leasing. And he actually said, we're even going to stop permitting. So we're going to take uh, the benefits to the uh, American worker off the table. We're going to make it more expensive by importing, and we're going to make it dirtier 
we're not we're not actually going to ask our adversaries to quit building their coal plants or you know our trading partners to quit building their coal plants but we are going to ask that we do some mining that involves um, in foreign countries and involves uh, just incredibly bad environmental standards. We're going to ask that we get product that is not as clean as what we could develop here. We're going to do all of those things and and basically try to cause, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't mean this deliberately, but, you know, the, the impact of all of this will be incredible energy costs. And you have run for office like I haven't, but I, I can't imagine that being a very marketable a very marketable political <laughs> ideology, no, right? You, I mean, you, if you go out and say, right. vote for me, and here's all the stuff I'm going to do. So he didn't quite say that, but I will tell you the impact. And this is the impact that stuns me, Scott. The other day, I was in Washington, D.C. You know, sadly, I'm, I am in the Beltway. And um, I was headed up to a meeting in the U.S. Capitol complex. And I got into a taxi and I'm heading up there, and a young lady is uh, driving this taxi. And, uh, you know, I ask her how she's doing. And she basically says to me, things are really, really tough. And I said, well, I know, but, you know, what in particular? Because she was a little distraught. And she basically began to explain to me just how high energy prices had impacted um, her work as a driver. But more importantly, how expensive food had become for her family, the high increased prices of, of groceries and, and just how hard it was for her. And as we approach the Capitol office complex, she says to me, do you talk to the people who, who work in Congress? And I say, yes, sadly, I do once in a while. And she says, would you tell them that we are hurting? Would you tell them that things are really, really hard. Now, let me tell you, she is not, uh, you know, she was not the person that you would expect to be saying, hey, our energy policies are harming us. But what she was saying is, look, what is happening today with these crazy prices that are fundamentally impacted by uh, a, a policy to drive energy costs up is unbelievable. Yeah, and you know, it, it, when we talk about those folks who can least afford it, it's certainly the folks who are often living at the margin, uh, the the, sing, the single mom. This is very regressive policy. It's incredible. Very right? regressive. It's incredible. And I think some of the information I've seen recently where part of the inflation that we're having, about 40% of the inflation is attributable uh, to what is called energy inflation. And it is incredible, and, and, and the people need to know that uh, when this administration took office, gasoline was uh, about $2.41 a gallon, and the day before Ukraine conflict began, it was $3.52, so that was uh, an increase of more than a dollar before the war, okay, so uh, which is a substantial amount, and yet the narrative is that this is a Putin premium, and it's unfortunate that we are, in our estimation at USAenergyworkers.com, it's our estimation that if we would unleash the American spirit, the innovation, the perspiration, the dedication, we could actually lower energy prices, which would lower inflation 
inflation, which would lower food inflation, rather than increasing interest rates, we believe we should be increasing domestic production to get that supply-demand equation into balance. When it's hard to get, it's hard to get people to want to increase supply if you're going to tell them that, you know, hey, they need to be out of business soon because of an existential threat, right? So, number one, that encouraging investment. And to be fair, I think this administration has sort of realized, like, that's bad rhetoric. So now they don't say that. They haven't really fundamentally changed their policy, but they don't go around saying that anymore. And the, the costs here, I, I think that we have to recognize that every agency – in the federal government currently, the EPA, the Department of the Interior, every every agency you can think of that deals with uh, energy issues, and many that don't, they have a concerted effort of making policies that are hostile to traditional energy production, uh, traditional energy usage. I mean, you're basically saying, hey, let's figure out how to get rid of gas stoves, let's figure out how to you know, every, everything you can think of, gas cars, on and on and on, all of these things, all of these things are designed to make things more, uh, a consequence of them is that it makes things much, much more expensive. And what is shocking to me is even if you did all those things, the environment is not better. Like, there is nothing uh, to indicate that the environment will be better um, except that everything will be more expensive. As a matter of fact, I sat down the other day with a journalist who was just riffing, riffing to me about how harmful some of the administration's current energy policies are in other countries because of practices associated with uh, mineral development in those countries and labor and health and safety standards. And she was saying to me, this reporter is saying, you can do all of these development here in the United States. And she told me, and I found this just amazing. She said to me, I don't even use the words clean energy anymore because I have, I've evaluated these things. And at the end of the day, I look at what American energy production has done over time. And I say it is unparalleled, unparalleled. And one of the things that, that we, again, at USAenergyworkers.com, we, we continuously are astounded by the fact that, you know, again, the experts tell us there are two things that drive climate change. One of them is carbon dioxide. One of them is methane. And in the Gulf of Mexico in particular, we got some incredible environmental metrics. The Gulf of Mexico has uh, the lowest carbon intensity production in America, the second lowest on the planet, and has the lowest uh, flaring and venting of, of methane due to a very, very robust pipeline system. And so what we, what we look at is the phrase global warming and then we see it being administered as though it's USA warming because we're not saying don't we're not saying cut back on your consumption Mr. consumer what we're saying is cut back on your production Mr. producer price will go up but don't worry about it we'll go over to other countries that don't share our values they'll backfill that production 
And as you said earlier, it, it does nothing for the environment, and the pain is all being felt by the American consumer. And obviously, an unforced error. It's difficult for us to understand. We, we perhaps have got to the point where we think there's a, a nefarious reason why, the, as I said in my opening comments today, there was a report that came out of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management in November of 2016 under the Obama-Biden administration that said not having offshore lease sales would actually cause greenhouse gas emissions to go up in the United States because we would have to backfill our, our needs with production often from uh, foreign countries with higher carbon intensity. So, you know, it, it's it's really, really sad. Uh, look, you're right. Elections have consequences, but people are not entitled to their facts, right? Uh, the facts are very clear here, and it's important that we believe at USA Energy Workers, the story gets out. We're doing everything we can to elevate and celebrate the contributions of our energy workers because we believe that at the core of a strong economy, a safe country, that we can, in fact, do it through energy. And one of the things that I think we've all kind of noticed uh, over the last uh, year or so is the fact that the European Union has said, you know, they got 40% of their natural gas from Russia. They've said, no, we don't want to do that anymore. So we have responded by saying, oh, that would be good for us to perhaps backfill that with LNG opportunities, yet we don't see the policies moving. You know, we believe that America has an incredible experience feeding the world through our farmers, on the strength of our farmers. We have fed the world, and in so doing, we've made friends, we've exported democracies and freedoms. But in the meantime, we believe now we have the opportunity on the strength of our oil workers to actually not only feed the world, but to fuel the world. But we need policies to align with that opportunity. We can make the planet a lot safer, a lot healthier if we were to unleash that American energy work. And I, I know that we've talked uh, a little bit about that, you and I, when we visit it, it is unfortunate. And now, you know, the idea of taking away perhaps a residential natural gas stove, you know, that's just ludicrous. Uh, I, I asked the question on, on the radio here when I was being interviewed, well, are we doing that in our schools and our military bases? What about in our hospitals and our nursing homes if it's bad for our children? And we, it would be, it, it's not even possible for us to take all of that natural gas out of the hospitals and in the nursing homes and our military bases, but yet we're picking on consumers. Uh, it, it just very, very unfortunate. I want to switch a little bit to an area that you have a lot of experience with and, and talk about how sometimes the government uses its different authorities to gum up the process. I personally was not as wise to the impacts of a misused or hijacked Endangered Species Act till I got to uh, to work in on the federal level. I have a little bit of a good story to share. My father was secretary of the Department of Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries in the 70s when the American alligator was on the endangered species list. They work really hard on some really robust management. And now that species has been removed. We have actually an alligator season in a very, very right. regulated way. We, we now have a whole industry that is uh, capturing and making those high available, the meat's available. It's a whole industry through, you know, again, appropriate management. But one of the things is that we did that at the same time in Louisiana. We took that one off an endangered species as we were ramping up our energy production. So again, it's not an either or choice, right? Tell me, tell me, because I, I get concerned that we have folks who use the Endangered Species Act to carry out their anti-energy development. Should I be concerned? Well, there is, there is that. And the reality is, I, I think um, for most Americans, the goal 
of conserving and doing things that are responsible to conserve our threatened species, I, I have always thought that that is a wonderful goal. And I think that there are lots of ways to do that. The challenge is these, these acts were written a long time ago, and they're not necessarily perfect or imperfect, but activists, both on the regulatory side and uh, groups, have, have litigated and litigated and litigated and really pushed some of these laws in ways that they probably were never intended to be pushed. At the same time, um, one of the things we did in our administration, which I thought was great, is we went through and looked at, hey, where has this case law taken us? And, and you know, maybe we can um, reset some of this not to minimize the need to conserve the species or to do that in a, in a, in a wise way, but to minimize some unnecessary conflict in these acts because I believe that 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 has unnecessarily led to basically conflict on how to conserve species, how to do it in a way that's responsible. And part of it is activists within the um, agencies themselves. You know, sometimes the folks within the agency don't really want to follow the rules or the law. And, and that requires, you know, a, a policymakers to step in and say, hey, you know, we need to hew closely to the law. But what we were able to do from a regulatory standpoint is really go in and make some big improvements in how we would consult on species and how we would list species. And uh, I read a book the other day uh, by a former Fish and Wildlife Service director where he went out and he went out, he was, he was, Dale Hall is his name, and he was the director during the George W. Bush administration, but he wrote a book uh, that came out. Uh, last year, and there's a vignette in it where he's he, one of his former subordinates is explaining what we did in the Trump administration and the benefits of it. And he basically says, look, it took a long time, but the Trump administration really got these issues right by incorporating best practices and, and making some changes that would make these acts work in a way that was not uh, weaponized but uh, would be good for the species, and we should all be behind that. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I think that goes to, uh, we can do two things at one time. This is America, and that kind of management philosophy produces those results. One of the things that we particularly concerned about here on the Gulf Coast is uh, we have now had the longest lapse in the history of our country when it comes to the adoption of a five-year offshore leasing plan. That plan uh, lapsed and this administration has failed to, to adopt a new one. You know, we've had, again, uh, offshore lease sales and we've looked to the offshore province as a strong provider of American energy. There's been now, I think, we own five decades of, of offshore energy between 13 different presidents of different parties. So again, not radical policy, policy that has been tried and tested, bipartisan for a long, long time, and has been good for America. Yet, I think there are some either statutory deadlines or some regulatory deadlines that this administration has missed and is perhaps uh, maybe struggling through the court system on that. A anything you might share with us on the process of that five-year offshore lease plan, is that, is that something that Congress has mandated that the executive branch produce on a regular basis? Well, you know, they, they set in law the requirements and certainly the 
uh, recently passed, you know, so-called Inflation Reduction Act had its own set of requirements. But the reality is, you know, there's not going to be a lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico in uh, 2024, I don't think. I mean, when you look at, number one, this administration, they like to blame the prior administration, but here's the facts. They could have, on day one, started working on the five-year plan and had it finalized well before it lapsed. They had plenty of time. They chose not to. They would say, well, you know, the other guys didn't do it, and that's, that's fine. But they had, you know, nearly two years to, to get it done. They didn't get it done. They now have a, an act that says, hey, if you're going to do things in, in these offshore, you know, in these wind areas, you also need to have some lease sales. And they're going to have the five-year plan finalized this fall, but the NEPA is going to lead to um, a long delay and, you know, I, I really don't believe there'll be a lease sale in, in 24 and unless it's very late 24. And so that's, that's the reality. And, you know, that allows them to be candid, uh, to have kept their promise of no new leasing. And, and the impact of it, the impact of it long term is quite significant. You know, you know better than anyone what production is in areas that were leased a long time ago, how that production has gone up and then begins to decline, how important it is to have leasing um, happening way out in the future. Before, I mean, that is what future development is all about. Uh, and at some point, at some point, this policy is going to come back and really, really bite uh, the American people in a way that is going to be very, very significant, all because we made a choice deliberately to not um, move forward on these processes and ensure that that there was going to be a pipeline here of energy resource that we will need. We will undoubtedly need at some point in time. Yeah. And, you know, I think folks sometimes read that, well, there was a lease sale in March and there'll be another one in September. But those lease sales were not from a five-year lease plan coming from the executive branch. Congress got so frustrated with this administration, they took the matters into their own hands and included language to have congressionally mandated lease sales, in a sense saying, just do it, right? right. And of course, that only is for two lease sales. And then you, you're right, you get into 2024 and without the congressional mandate, we back to the executive branch, uh, slow walking this. And and again, very, very unfortunate. As we begin to wrap up, tell us a little bit. Uh, again, I, I want to hear about the process on, on your new book and how is it being received. And we want to certainly uh, give you an opportunity to invite folks to visit the bookstore, if you would, online and make those books available. as Because it's really, really great reading. Uh, I, I can share with you as a person who has served the public. This is a book that that most public employees should read on the first day, should be part of their orientation. Go ahead. Tell us a little bit about how this came to be. Well, you know, my, my real hope, is, and the book is called You Report to Me, and it really it, it begins with a little bit of an analogy of a discussion I had with President Trump. The real point of the book, and I hope, I hope people will read it, you know, it's, um, it's a book that is designed to give people an understanding of just what it's like to work in these environments of these agencies and what it's like to try and drive change. And the whole point of the book ultimately is to say that if the American, first off, I believe that 
Um, we are we live in the greatest country in the world. We should be able to demand the greatest results possible from our, our government. And if we as a people want better outcomes, uh, the American people need to tell their, their current and future leaders to provide them better results and demand better results. And the way you do that is uh, with your voice to the your legislators and to whomever you uh, want to support for president. But ultimately, every single person in the system of government, whether it's in the civil service or a political appointee or um, in the legislative branch, you know, at the end of the day, they work for you. They all report to you and me. And we need to start telling people we want some better outcomes. We don't want embarrassments like Afghanistan. We want plentiful, affordable energy. And we expect people to provide it. And if they don't, we'll find a group of new people. And um, if we don't do that and we don't have an accountable government, we'll all lose faith in government. And, and we can't do that. We need to deliver. The leaders of our country need to deliver better results. And the way they do that is by beginning to demand that the people that work within these agencies and for them get with the program. Well, you know, that's well said, very articulate. I want to thank you for taking the time to put together uh, the thoughts and, and make the book possible. Where do our listeners find the book? They can go to www.youreporttome.com. Great. So let's make that happen. I think folks will, will enjoy it. As we wrap up, we would say we believe that there are two things that get us up in the morning, always a measure of hope and a cup of coffee, right? And no amount of coffee can overcome the loss of hope. That's right. Uh, so, so we are hopeful today that our nation's energy policy will pivot to embrace our domestic climate advantage, environmentally advantage, energy. We believe in the hard hats. We believe in the steel-toed boot wearers. We believe in the men and women who get up each day, kiss their families goodbye, and set out to do the hard work of energizing our nation. It's been a joy to have Secretary Bernhardt on our show today. We're appreciative of it. We want to wish you a very uh, happy uh, weekend as we approach the weekend and uh, look forward to seeing you again. And always remember that the men and women of the Gulf Coast appreciated your leadership that demanded three things, that we could have robust production, we could do it safely, and we could do it in environmentally sustainable. We prove that. We thank you. We look forward to seeing you again, sir. Thank you. This has been Balancing the Three E's podcast with your host, Scott Angel, the voice of the USA Energy Worker, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. For more episodes or to find out more, visit us online at OGGN.com.